Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 21. Hear the word of God. The Canaanite king of Arad lived in the Negev. He heard that the Israelites were coming on the road of Atharim. So the king went out and attacked the Israelites. Arad captured some of the people and made them prisoners. Then the Israelites made a special promise to the Lord. Please help us defeat these people. If you do this, we will give their cities to you. We will totally destroy them. The Lord listened to the Israelites and helped them defeat the Canaanites. They completely destroyed the Canaanites and their cities. So that place was called Hormah. The Israelites left that place and camped at Oboth. Then they left Oboth and, cl- and camped at Ai Abarim in the desert east of Moab. They left that place and camped in the Zered Valley. Then they moved and camped across the Arnon River in the desert. This river started at the Ammonite border. The valley was the border between Moab and the Amorites. This is why these words are written in the book of the wars of the Lord. And Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the hills by the valleys that lead to the town of Ar, these places are at the border of Moab. The Israelites left that place and traveled to Beir. There is a well in Beir where the Lord said to Moses, Bring the people together here, and I will give them water. Then the Israelites sang this song, Well, flow with water. Sing about it. Great men dug this well. Important leaders dug this well. They dug this well with their staffs and walking sticks. It is a gift in the desert. The people traveled from Matanah to Nahalil. Sorry. Then they traveled from Nahalil to Bamoth. They traveled from Bamoth to the valley of Moab. In this place, the top of Pisgah Mountain looks over the desert. The Israelites sent some men to King Sihon of the Amorites. The men said to the king, Allow us to travel through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard. We will not drink water from any of your wells. We will travel only along the king's road. We will stay on that road until we have traveled through your country. But King Sihon would not allow the Israelites to travel through his country. He gathered together his army and marched out to the desert to fight against the Israelites. The king's army fought against the Israelites at Jahaz. But the Israelites defeated the king and took his land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River. The Israelites took the land as far as the Ammonite border. They stopped at that border because it was strongly defended by the Ammonites. Israel took all the Amorite cities and began living in them. They even defeated the city of Heshbon and all the small towns around it. Heshbon was the city where Sihon, the Amorite king, lived. In the past, Sihon had fought with the king of Moab. Sihon had taken the land as far as the Arnon River. That is why the singers sing this song. Go in and rebuild Heshbon. Make Sihon's city strong. A fire began in Heshbon. That fire began in Sihon's city. The fire destroyed Ar and Moab. It burned the hills above Arnon River. It is bad for you, Moab. You lost Chemosh's temple people. His sons ran away. His daughters were taken prisoners by Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we defeated those Amorites. We destroyed their towns from Heshbon to Debon, from Nashim to Nophah near Mediba. So the Israelites made their camp in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent some men to look at the town of Jezer. 
Then the Israelites captured that town and small towns that were around it. They forced the Amorites who were living there to leave. Then the Israelites traveled on the road toward Bashan. King Og of Bashan got his army and marched out to meet the Israelites. He fought against them in a dry. But the Lord said to Moses, Don't be afraid of that king. I will allow you to defeat him. You will take his whole army and all his land. Do the same to him as you did to Sihon, the Amorite king who lived in Heshbon. So the Israelites defeated Og and his army. They killed him, his sons, and all his army. Then the Israelites took all his land. This is the word of the Lord. of preliminary notes. Uh, first of all, a couple of answers to prayer. Um, Susan Clark is back with us. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. She, uh, she, she flew out to Idaho and got her feet worked on by a special foot doctor and then she went down to Florida to recover uh, with her family. Uh, she's back with us a week earlier than we thought. She's going to be starting Irish dancing lessons soon. And we are delighted that you're here. We've missed you. Uh, we had, a, we had a great, great replacements while you were gone, but uh, you belong here. So we're delighted to have you uh, here. I'm delighted to see you here this morning. Lord be with you, brother. Uh, we were a little bit worried about you over the weekend. Uh, but may the Lord strengthen you and heal your body and strengthen you each day as you go forward. Uh, thank you, Brother Jordan, for reading that long passage. Uh, earlier uh, in this sermon series on the book of Numbers, I was having Jordan read the, the, the passage uh, in Numbers, largely because we were reading really long stretches of Scripture, and I got tired of hearing my own voice, uh, but also because he gets to read the Hebrew names rather than me. So I appreciate your, your willingness to do that. This past week, uh, Evelyn Brown hit 104, okay? She's well, okay? She is well. She's living up near her sister. She's in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania. Uh, her, her, her daughter, I said sister, I meant her daughter. Her daughter lives nearby, and so uh, she's able to watch out for her. Um, open your hymnals. The hymnal is the red book in, in the pews. And turn to hymn number 318. Some of you know, do you have a hymnal there? Uh, 318. I want to talk about this hymn. It's not my... Do you know this hymn? Raise your hand if you know this hymn. Raise your hand if this is your favorite hymn. Okay, it was, it's a very familiar hymn to me. It's not, it wasn't my favorite hymn as a kid. Uh, uh, but I wanted to talk about this hymn for just a little bit before we turn into our sermon. We, we often call it trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who would trust and obey. So there are, there are two things that are going on here, and these are, these are kind of the, 
the, the two pillars of the Christian life. One is we have to trust God. All right? We have no relationship with God if we don't trust God. Trusting God is different from knowing about God. Trusting God is different from believing certain facts about God. Okay? You can be a scholar of the Bible. You can believe truths about who God is and still not trust Him. So the beginning of the Christian life is with trusting God, but the Christian life is lived out in obedience. Okay? We're called to a new way of life. We are supposed to look different from the world. If the world doesn't look at you and say there's something strange about him, you might not be a Christian. Okay, there are no closeted Christians. Okay, to be a Christian is to be out. Okay, and some of us need to come out of the closet. Alright? Trust and obey. Okay, that's what we want to talk about this morning. You know the hymn. We're not going to sing it, but unless our organist tells us to. Um, by the way, the organ's on the fritz right now, so you can, you can lay hands on the organ and pray over it. Uh, a bearing went out down in the basement. We'll, we'll get it fixed at some point. So we can think of the book of Numbers as part two of the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the descendants of Abraham, who are not yet a nation, who have no law of their own, who have no prophets or scriptures of their own, who are an oppressed and enslaved minority living in what was the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, who were practicing the religion of the Egyptians and probably had little more than a dim memory of their ancestor Abraham being called by God out of his country. These people, who were not yet a nation, are rescued almost against their will out of Egypt and they're led by Moses into the Sinai wilderness. And when the Israelites get through the Red Sea and they witness the destruction of the armies of Pharaoh, they burst out into a song, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. At Mount Sinai, Moses goes up into the presence of God for 40 days and he receives the law. That law is going to define the religious and the national life of the chosen people. And then that ends the book of Exodus. The book of Numbers begins with the children of Israel still camped at Mount Sinai. More than a million people. They have received the law. They have constructed the tabernacle. Food is being provided for them miraculously from heaven. And then it's time to move. God rescued people from slavery. He rescued people from a false religion. But he rescued those people. Uh, but to rescue those people, he had to take them out of the rich and fertile Nile Valley and into a barren wilderness, into a desert, into a place that could barely support life, that had no towns and no cities. It's as if they had to be removed from a posh and leafy mainline neighborhood to go out into the Death Valley for a while. And it's only there, in the silence and in the emptiness of that place, that God's voice is heard. You might ask yourself, 
Why didn't God send Moses as a prophet into Egypt to preach? Maybe they could have built a a tabernacle there beside the Nile River and started worshiping Yahweh instead of worshiping the, the river. I think there was something about being removed from that world, that rich world of Egypt that kept them well fed, even as it kept them in slavery. I think there was something about being removed from that world that allowed them to hear the voice of God. You all know the parable of the sower. Jesus talks about the preaching of the gospel being like a farmer who goes out into the field and he casts the seed and some of the seed lands among thorny weeds. Jesus says that's like the people who hear the word of God but they let the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life stop them from going so that growing so they never produce a crop. It's likely that if Moses had preached in Egypt The thorny weeds of that rich land would have choked out any crop. It's almost like a journey into the wilderness was for them an attention-focusing spiritual retreat. So into the wilderness, God takes his people. But the wilderness is not the goal. It's only a stop. On the way, God wants his people ultimately settled in the promised land. The law that he gave them was designed for people living freely in their own land. And so a year after they have gotten out of Egypt, the time has finally come for them to leave the wilderness and to leave Mount Sinai and to move forward into the land of Canaan. At the beginning of Numbers chapter 13, we read, quote, The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. And so 12 men are sent, one leader from each of the tribes. They explore the land for 40 days. All 12 come back and they say, you know, the land is beautiful. It's rich. It's fruitful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the 12 are filled with fear. The land is full of giants. We look like grasshoppers next to them. And they start a revolt against Moses. And they talk about going back to Egypt. Two of the explorers, however, Joshua and Caleb, said, If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people because we will devour them. The Lord is with us. That's the minority report from Joshua and from Caleb. But the people of Israel are too afraid to follow Joshua and Caleb. They don't trust God yet and they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. They want to kill these men rather than running the risk of going up against giants. But here is what we have to keep in mind when reading this story. God already said, I am giving this land to the Israelites. The God who split the Red Sea said, I am giving this land to the Israelites. The God who gave the law at Mount Sinai said, I am giving this land 
to the Israelites, the God who fed his people every day with manna from heaven, said, I am giving this land to the Israelites. And so the fear of entering that land and the rebellion against God's leaders is evidence of a lack of trust in God. And because they don't trust God, they don't obey God. Now here's a theological freebie, no extra charge for this one. Every sin ever committed has its root in a lack of trust of God. From the very first sin in the Garden of Eden to the final sin that someone will commit just before Jesus returns, every sin has at its root a lack of trust in God. You can go home and think about that and you'll discover the truth of that. So when the Israelites show God their lack of trust after all that he's done for them and all that he's shown them, when these Israelites show God their lack of trust, he's furious. He threatens to destroy them. Like in the time of Moses, he just wants to wipe them all out and start over again. But Moses says, what will the Egyptians say if you bring these people out in the wilderness only to kill them? And so God relents. And God refrains from executing justice against these people. But those who were afraid, they are condemned to live the rest of their lives in the wilderness. In a sense, God gave them what they wanted. They didn't want to go up against the giants, and so God lets them stay put in their safe little place for 40 years until they all die off. And those 40 years turn out to be a purgatory of misery and complaining. We actually don't read much about this time. The book of Numbers doesn't say much. It must have been pretty boring. Last week we had the story of Moses striking the rock twice. This week in our first reading we had the king of Edom sending the Israelites packing. That's it. Those are the only two stories from this 40-year period. All the other stories in Numbers are before and after that period. 40 years of misery and disappointment and complaining and the slow decline of the fearful, untrusting generation. And then, in chapter 21, the story changes. In chapter 21, the songs of victory once again begin to ring out. Since the escape from Egypt, the last time we heard the Israelites sing a song was way back in Exodus 15 on the safe side of the Red Sea when Moses and all of the people sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is His name. That was the last time we heard them sing, 40 years earlier. Imagine going 40 years without a reason to sing a song. Imagine 40 years of being alive 
but just barely alive. Imagine always pining for the past. Oh, it was so good when we were back there in Egypt. Imagine 40 years without a single victory, more than just having enough to survive. How long has it been since you have had a reason to celebrate in your life? Do you feel like you've been hanging on by your fingernails? I know that this whole world has been in a funk for these past couple of years, but imagine a 40-year, generation-long funk. Well, the story doesn't end there. Because after 40 years of misery, after 40 years of just barely scraping by in chapter 21, we again hear songs of victory, like sweet rain after a long drought. Between chapters 20 and 21, there has been a generational change. The fearful, doubting, disobeying generation was passing away and in its place a new, young, brave and trusting generation was rising. Prior to chapter 21, the children of Israel had only two encounters with the people in the land that they would one day occupy. Keep in mind that no one actually lived in the Sinai wilderness, so when they were wandering around the Sinai wilderness, they were by themselves. But And when the children of Israel did encounter other people, it was because they were heading back towards civilization. And both of those encounters turn out badly. The first time comes in Numbers chapter 14 when the Amalekites defeated them in battle and chased them all the way back to Hormah. That was just after the Israelites uh, had their big... uh, freak out over the report about the giants in the land. God punished them and then they realized their mistake and they said, well, okay, we'll go ahead and we'll go up into the land. But God hadn't told them to do that. And they didn't go with Moses and they didn't go with the Ark of the Covenant. And their rash decision to head into the territory of the Amalekites was not based on the word of God and it ended in disaster. It may have looked bold, but it was stupid. Here's something we need to be careful about. Boldness is not the same thing as faith. Believing in oneself is not the same thing as believing in God. Sometimes people want to replace obedience to God and believing in God with boldness and believing in ourselves. The Bible never says believe in yourself. I know every Hollywood movie and 100 billion Facebook memes tell you believe in yourself. It's not in the Bible. What the Bible says is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him and He will make your path straight. The heart is about believing, the path is about the doing. Believe in God, not in yourself. Walk the path that God has set for you, not the path that you think is best. In Numbers chapter 14, the Israelites 
in a kind of crazed moment, believe in themselves. They don't listen to God. And they lose their first battle against the Canaanites. And they go running with their tails between their legs all the way back to Hormah. The second time the Israelites encounter the people whose land they will later occupy is in Numbers chapter 20. We, that was our first reading this morning. That's when they ask for passage through Edom. Israel says, we're just passing through. We're not going to bother anybody. Do you mind if we go this way? And the king of Edom says, fee-fi-fo-fum, and the Israelites run away. At this point in the story, the Israelites are zero for two. But everything changes in chapter 21. I need to begin with a geography lesson. Can you picture in your mind the Holy Land? You know what that looks like? The, the co- I mean, I could pull that thing up there and draw the map for you. You know where the Jordan River is, right? At the top, uh, uh, you've got the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. There is a map. Uh, thank you, Jordan. There is a map in, in the bullet that might help. At the top is, is the Sea of Galilee. The River Jordan runs south out of it, and it runs down into the Dead Sea. If you follow that straight line down, you'll end up at the Gulf of Aqaba. That whole thing is called the Jordan Rift Valley. This is a valley that's not cut by a river, but is actually the result of two plates on the surface of the earth pulling apart from each other. Okay? Israel is on the western side, the kingdom of Jordan is on the eastern side, and those two plates are, are, are separating, and there's this valley down there. Uh, in, uh, in the middle. Okay, so that's your geography lesson. The modern state of Israel is on the western side of the valley. The modern kingdom of Jordan is on the eastern side of the valley. Chapter 21 recounts three victories. The first is at Hormah. Now that's in the Negev Desert. That's now part of the state of Israel. That's on the western side of the Jordan Rift Valley. In that case, the children of Israel seem to be minding their own business. They're wandering around there uh, on the road um, in, in, in the desert. And the king of Arad sends out an army and attacks them and takes some of them prisoner. And the response of the Israelites, please remember, this is the new younger Israel, the generation that was raised in the wilderness. The response of the Israelites to this new crisis is exactly right. The first thing they do is they turn to God and they ask for help. Please help us defeat these people is what they say in verse 2. Now, remember for a moment what the older generation of Israelites did when they faced trouble in the wilderness. When there wasn't enough food or enough water. Remember what they did? Well, Instead of turning to God, they turned on their leaders. Instead of using their voices to ask God for help, they used their voices to murmur and to complain. Apparently that was the habit for 40 miserable years. But the new generation has a different idea. Instead of turning on their leaders and complaining, they turned to God and they asked for help, that's the first thing they do, which is pretty great. 
And the second thing they do, which is also pretty great, is they promise that all of the glory will go to God, and they promise that they'll do any hard work necessary. Here's what we read in the second part. This is verse 2 of Numbers chapter 21. If you help us defeat these people, we will give their cities to you. We will totally destroy them. An enemy, unprovoked, has come out against Israel. The king of Arad has attacked the people and taken prisoners. So what is Israel going to do? They can run away and hope to avoid further confrontation. How many of us do that? When conflict arises, oh, let me just get out of here. Or they can deal with the problem, which means going into battle. You understand that if Israel goes into battle against Arad, some Israelites will die. There will be casualties. There will be a price that has to be paid, but they ask God to help them defeat Arad, and they promise to give the cities of Arad to God, and they promise to do what they can do to destroy the people totally. What does that mean? Well, in ancient times, one of the reasons, well, maybe even in modern times if you work for the Warner Group, in ancient times, one of the reasons people went to war, one of the reasons that a soldier would risk death was for a chance to have a share in the spoils. You joined an army that conquered a city and you got your share of the loot if you lived. But the promise that Israel makes is, is that they won't take any loot. It's all going to belong to God. So what would happen if we were to ask God to help us in our battles, and if we were to promise that 100% of the glory and the benefit from the victory that we're asking for, that 100% of the glory and the benefit would go to God and not to us? What if we didn't ask God for help just so that we could have a victory and some more loot in our bank accounts. That's what's going on here. When the Israelites meet King, the king of Arad, we're under attack. Help us, God. And if we win, we'll give everything to you. You know what happened? the 40-year streak of losing turns into their first victory there on the edge of the promised land because their attitude changed, their outcome changed. Commitment replaced complaining, trust replaced fear. And from that first battle victory on the western side of the Jordan Valley, the people then cross over to the eastern side into what is today the kingdom of Jordan, and they turn north along the king's highway. Their goal is to cross back over the Jordan to enter the promised land. They think that the eastern path 
which is less populated, will be easier to travel on and they'll avoid unnecessary conflicts with the locals as they pass through. On the eastern side of the Rift Valley, they travel north until they reach the Arnon River. And that river flows from the east westward into the Dead Sea. You can see it on your little map. Across the Arnon River, on the north side of the Arnon River, lies the territory of Sihon, king of the Amorites. The Israelites are not interested in stopping or staying in that place, and they ask the king politely for the right to pass through. They say to the king of the Amorites the same things they said to the king of Arad, allow us to travel through your country. We will not go... through any field or vineyard. We will not drink any water from your wells. We will only travel along the king's road. We will stay on that road until we have traveled through your country. But instead of granting the right of passage, Sion, king of the Amorites, comes out with an army and he attacks Israel. Then the Israelites defeat the king and they take his entire country and they occupy his cities, including his capital, Heshbon, which is, by the way, is right across the Jordan River from Jericho. But the Israelites aren't done yet. In fact, they are wanting to go further north. They have their eyes set on the Promised Land. They want to go further north on the eastern side of the Jordan before they cross over into Canaan. They travel north toward Bashan, and King Og comes out against them with an army and God says to Moses don't be afraid of that king I will allow you to defeat him you will take his whole army and all of his land do the same thing you did to him as you did to Sion the Amorite king who lived in Heshbon and that's precisely what happens the people trusted God and they obeyed God And did exactly what God told them to do. And all of Bashan was conquered. Between the two kingdoms, this was a very large amount of territory. All of it is outside of Canaan. When the Israelites had left Mount Sinai, they had no plans on occupying these kingdoms. But because the people in those kingdoms opposed God's plan for the Israelites, God gave them over to the Israelites. And their territory became part of an expanded kingdom of Israel. It was a kind of a bonus. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. All of us know that old hymn. It's a very simple formula for the Christian life. Trust God. Trust that He is truly who He says He is. That He's the King of the universe. That He's the designer of your body and of your life. That He is the bridegroom of the church that He bought with His own shed blood. Trust Him. Look, I know it's easy for me as the preacher to say those words. Maybe you think that that's my job to say those words. I'm just doing it because it's my job. But as I've told you a dozen times from this pulpit, a preacher is always preaching to himself first. And I know how hard it is to trust at times. If we can only please God, if we live by faith, we're going to have to 
get some help from God to get that faith. So often we try to live by sight. We see the giants and we see the armies and we see the shortages of food and water and we panic because we don't trust God to handle the details of our life because we don't trust God to carry us through even this present difficulty that we're facing right now. And I know a number of you are facing very large difficulties in your life. God's desire is that his people thrive and not just survive. When the children of Israel did not trust God, well, God was merciful and he allowed them to survive. They did have food and water every day. That alone was a miracle, but God actually had so much more in mind for them. God wanted to give them so much more. But to receive all of God's bounty, first they had to trust Him. And once they started trusting God, they escaped the wilderness. They escaped this land without wells and rivers, and they found themselves in possession of an unexpected territory. They found themselves living in cities that they hadn't built. When we trust in God, then we can also obey God. God has work for us to do. Some of that work involves putting on armor and picking up a sword and going into battle. And there will be costs. There are risks. Being a child of God is not safe. But it is good. And it is rich. And it is rewarding. So what's going on in your life? Are you wandering in a wilderness? Or are you living in God's full favor in a land flowing with milk and honey? God can be with you in either of those circumstances. God in his mercy will sustain you if you're in a wilderness. But God's plan for you is something better. Are you trusting God implicitly? Do you just take God at his word? He says it, I believe it. Or do you question God? Do you judge God's word against your own sight and wisdom? Are you obeying God? Do you think that you can enjoy God's favor if you don't obey Him? Do you think that you can please God if you don't trust Him? What would it take for you to begin to trust God implicitly? Let's pray.
Lord God, you were the God before all time. You were the, the God who brought this world into being. And at the same time, you were the God of today and you were the God of our tomorrow. Lord, we confess that we have often been content to wander in a wilderness of bare survival when you have in mind for us a land flowing with milk and honey. And Lord, the loss is ours, but I know it grieves your heart too. And I know, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. Lord God, I pray that you would grow in us a larger faith and trust in you. I pray that you would conquer us. I pray that every thought that we have and that it would come in submission to, to your word. I pray that we would trust you the way a happy child trusts his father, knowing that all kinds of good things come from your hand. Lord, it is your desire to bless us and if we are lacking any blessing, the fault can only lie on our side. So we pray this day that you would help us trust you more, more deeply, more consistently. And I pray that out of that trust would come a childlike obedience. Lord Jesus, you said that we could not see the kingdom of God unless we came to it as children. So make us children. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you that that blessing is from generation to generation. And that blessing is for our children and for our children's children. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray saying our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.